All right, we're back. It is March 25th. We're recording this uh, Friday, March 25th, 10 a.m. DC time. Joining us today, as always, is Gerald Ashley from the United Kingdom. And we've got a special guest, Jim Ellis, who's joining us from, where are you joining us from, Jim? Alexandria, Virginia, just uh, really down love the road it. from you. I love it. Yes. Northern Virginia, the future capital of the world with Amazon. <laughs> so we're going to get right into it. Um, let's hope the rest of the world doesn't have the roads that, uh, system that we do here. Otherwise, then the world's in real trouble. Wow, Jim, the future, as you know, the future is bicycles and scooters. So Yeah, that's true. <laughs> There's no need for roads. Yeah. Um, well, that's a good transition. Why don't we get right into it? Our first topic we thought we would talk about today, um, obviously there's a lot going on in the world. We're going to address kind of three main topics. The first one we thought we'd address, we put a lot of production value into this, Jim, yes. is energy. So let's get right into it. Who wants to lead us off and talk about energy? Can I, um, can I steam off with a, uh, a few points? Um, yeah, sure. This is a nice slow motion car crash this energy crisis. It's been coming for a very, very long time. And the bad news, it'll take a long time to put right. Um, it, it, short of drilling a hole in the ground and getting oil out or fracking for gas, most of the alternatives uh, involve uh, a lot, well, they, they all involve a lot of money, but they involve a lot of time. Um, and what I notice as a sort of outsider and looking in on the energy market is it, it, there are two or three very vocal tribes that really won't broke any negotiation with the others. So people are either very pro-nuclear or very anti. And we have a huge anti-fracking movement in the UK. It's going to be a real struggle to, to start fracking uh, natural gas over here. Um, and then that's before we get onto this whole green idea that we should just be doing less all round, um, irrespective of the fact that, you know, you're going to slow the world economy down and that's all going to make us poorer. And then the final one, which is slightly comic, there's a quite a, there's always an anti-oil market, but um, a lot of people are talking for zero oil. Well, I just wonder where they think <laughs> and all the clothes that they're wearing are going to come from. And uh, so governments, I think, as we know, are always towed around by short-term short uh, lobby groups, I, or I think, to a great degree. And it's a big problem in energy in the same way as it's a big problem in transport, because, um, you, you know, you can't have a three-month transport plan and you can't have a three-month energy plan. So somehow governments have got to persuade us and everybody else, I suppose, that we need a portfolio mix of all of this stuff. But, you know, we've got huge lobbying by um, wind energy groups, solar power groups, all the rest of it. Um, quite how we pick our way through this, I don't know. In the meantime, of course, the price has um, just gone through the ceiling. Yeah, no, it's a good transition. And as background, I mean, both of you guys will know this. Uh, you know, I've done work for the mining industry. I've done work for the chemical industry. and. Back in 2008, um, George W. Bush was president. We, the coalition group, talking about trying to get something really hard through. Um, we expanded essentially drilling on the Outer Continental Shelf and the Arctic. And it was a Democrat-controlled Congress, which was really interesting. But the coalition to get that through, and this is, you know, I was at the tail end of it. I probably worked on this issue for a year. But this was like 10, 12 years in the, in the, in the offing just to get the legislation through. Mm -hmm. And then 
you know, you got another 10 years to build the infrastructure. So all these immediate energy is not like an overnight solution. And it literally powers everything in our lives from what we wear to what we eat to this technology we're using right here. And we need access to we need access to carbon at the end of the day, which enough people don't, I think, fully appreciate. But that's where we are. And, you know, you layer in geopolitics with Putin and you get a real pickle on your hands. Yeah, I think a theme that um, we've talked about before, and we can uh, fold Jim in on this, is that really since COVID and now events afterwards, the world's got bigger and it's got harder to get around and it's got more expensive. And um, one of our favorite little topics um, is Anchorage in Alaska, because this, uh, with all this airspace, um, uh, kind of blocked off everywhere for political reasons. Um, flying everywhere is just going to take more. It's going to take more energy. It's going to take more money. So ev everything, I think, points to a slower, bigger world and a more expensive one. And that's very different for kind of my generation who, since the 20s, we thought nothing of jumping on a plane. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same in the States when budget airlines came in. I, you know, a lot of that's kind of fading away, I think. Yeah, just when the technology is getting better for all of this and the politics is getting worse. And uh, the problem with the energy industry is the politics that surrounds it, as you were touching upon, Gerald. Mm -hmm. uh, the climate change thing, I think, is my favorite issue because it's all politically driven. And, yeah. uh, you know, they're relying on these same types of people to project what's going to happen 50 years from now who can't get the weather right next week. Well... I think, um, you know, that, that, that's another big picture theme is the uh, over-reliance on, on past data and modeling and thinking because I've got a slightly cuter algorithm than you, I'm going to get the jump on things. Right. kind of works in high-frequency trading on Wall Street. Um, but as you say, whether it's going to rain in two weeks' time in Edinburgh, good luck. And it, it, the future's just not that malleable. You know, they're just literally too many unknowns. Um, I think the one thing that has happened in energy is, um, is reality has come crashing through the door. This big elephant called reality has come crashing in. And the idea that we um, uh, it's going to be a painless transition to alternatives to fossil fuel, I think that's for the birds. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it, I agree with you, Jim, is down to politics as well, and geopolitics as well, because yes. obviously... Um, I don't know, it, it all starts to feel a bit like the 1970s again, um, you know, with petrodollars and um, uh, it, you know, inflation and stagnant economy. Uh, and the only thing missing is glam rock. I mean, when glam rock comes back, we are back in the 70s. But, and the 70s well, well, Mark, Mark probably wouldn't, wouldn't remember Jimmy Carter. He's probably too young. But I do remember, actually, Jimmy. Okay. I do I, I I, remember the 76 election. My okay. mom... My mom wanted to vote for Carter over Ford. That's my uh, only memory. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm completely ancient, so I remember it quite well. And I always yes, remember me too. about the first time I took any sort of real interest in American politics, I suppose it would be Watergate. And then um, I do remember with Carter, there was an ABC campaign of anybody but Carter. Yeah. And he came right the way through the middle. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's all, so welcome to 2022. It's all a big mess. 
And, and it's just back to the way we were at the end of the Carter administration, although it's on steroids because uh, Biden got there in a year, what it took Jimmy Carter three years to do. <laughs> and I think Jimmy Carter, and you know, he's still alive. Yes. Uh, you know, he's like, I believe he's 97. Yeah, I mean, a time fighter. Yeah, he has got to be the happiest guy, at least in American politics, because he's no longer the worst president. <laughs> well, well, that's a vote of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Biden is, is Biden as bad as Carter. That should be that's a whole different pot. Yeah, but let's wait, let's but let's go back to the energy situation in Carter. I mean, I think famously, you know, he's, there was that great speech where he basically said, "Put on a sweater." You know, mm-hmm. turn down the energy, mm-hmm. put on a sweater, which is um, kind of and goes against the whole idea of the bountifulness of America, especially in this hemisphere. You know, the amount of energy that we can access between Mexico, the United States and Canada is immense. I mean, it could power the whole planet. And then you add on nuclear. Um, that's what's interesting. The climate debate, I think where those guys have really failed is not so much. Yeah. Trying to control the climate, but saying, listen, let's ha- let's use energy more efficiently. Right. Yeah. There's no there's no problem with that. But there's the idea no of changing the climate and denying ourselves access to those resources is crazy. Well, and the other point, too, that I think is really important and has to be made during this election by the Republicans is that just a year and a half ago, America was an energy exporter and energy independent. And Biden changed all that on the first day he was in. And that that is where you pin everything on him, because that's true. I um, I can't say I remember it from the time, but in the age of YouTube, you can go back and look at stuff. And there's quite a famous clip of uh, Jimmy Carter on the roof of the White House um, hailing the arrival of solar panels. Mm-hmm. And um, pick a year, I can't remember which year it is, obviously late 70s. Uh, and he announced that, you know, by 1990, that we'd all be doing it. Yeah. And um, again, this idea that we're just, there's some sort of get out of jail card uh, for energy, I think is, is you know. Right. Well, we're basically right. But getting back to, I think there's been three big announcements too um, around the obviously batteries, right? Um, the Coke, Coke industry is getting involved. Mercedes, LNG, um, you know, Tesla is finally opening their new plant in Germany. So the battery stuff is super interesting. But once again, you know, these are still five, ten years away, and the transition in the short term. I don't know, Jim. You can speak to more about this. Like getting back to your, uh, you can defend the great. The Republic of California, but Newsom dropping these gift cards, you know, for four hundred bucks to help Californians offset Hurt the yard. price. Of, yeah. Hurt yard, by the way. Um, what kind of crazy nonsense is this? And you know, I mean, like this is good, feel good politics. But once again, how is this going to help the economy? Well, it's, it's Democrats generally look at that. They try to buy their votes. So that's what it's all about. It's all about everything relates to the elections for them, and. This is just kind of a nonsensical move, I think, but one more way to redistribute all the all of the wealth in California, and it's going to drive more and more people out. You know, I think the biggest problem we've got on these gas prices coming is as it relates to the trucking industry. I mean, when you have these eighteen wheelers, and it's going to cost more than four hundred dollars to fill up one one fill up, yeah, in gasoline, how can they afford that? I mean, the government's going to have to do something, I think, to help the trucking industry, or the whole economy's going to shut down. I, I think and I'm right. Way Newsom's doing it. Yeah, I think I'm right in saying, and I think Mark, we talked about this when we talked about it seems a million years ago now, the Canadian truck 
uh, truckers. Oh, right. the, <laughs> the majority of US trucking firms are kind of the equivalent of mom and pop shops. They've got two or three trucks and trailers. And Correct. as you say, uh, they're very vulnerable to going going out of business, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I don't see how they can how they're going to afford that. There's so what's, more- the, what's the advice in the short term? Uh, obviously, I think the three of us all agree, you know, let's get more energy into the mix. Um, but what's the short term solution? We're just, are we just going to see a lot of crazy ideas from politicians? Or do we see anybody I, I, out there talking sensibly about where we should be going? I think I think the um, the, the very short term fix is LNG. Um, Germany doing a deal with Qatar. Boris has been glad handing in the Middle East, mm-hmm. saying, wouldn't it be awfully nice to give us some of your gas and oil? Um, they'll just rub their hands and see more dollars. And of course, I think, um, was it only just yesterday, Biden saying that you'd do a deal with the EU on LNG? EU, right. Um, but we're talking like a one or two fix. And again, maybe this comes back to Jim's point. Can we do something that gets through the next electoral cycle? And it, it you know, it's not uh, at the top of the headlines. Yeah. I mean, I don't think this administration will ever do it, but I think the answer is going back to the Trump energy policies. Jim, do you think this is going to break through? Yeah, like, but as you point terms- out, that's not going to happen overnight, even if they decided to do that. But that that's the best answer. But do you think we're going to have a more cogent debate around long-term energy in the election? Or is there going to be kind of just short-term gimmicks? No, probably short-term. Uh, I, I, you know, I think there's a recognition probably out there, and particularly how energy will relate to inflation. I think that's going to be the huge driver because that's something that everybody sees. And, and you know, the Republicans yeah. counting on a big wave election. And if the elections here in America were next week, I think that's true, but they're not next week. And November is a long way off and a lot's going to change between now and then. And you have to think that Biden and the Fed, they're going to take some action to at least get those numbers back on the right track. And I think we're a long way from seeing some type of wave developing here in the U.S. on this midterm election. I mean, people aren't, it's too early in the spending pattern. They're getting the bills now. We're, yeah. certainly, we're certainly hearing quite regularly stories of household um, natural gas and uh, electricity bills going to be double. And people think they may double again. Um, now, it's always maybe a little surprising um, but certainly in the UK, I'm sure it's true in the US, the vast majority of people have very little savings. Mm-hmm. And so if you suddenly get hit with, you know, 1500 bucks or a thousand pounds or whatever it is, that really hits a hell of a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people pretty much live quite close to the edge. Although and- in the US, just excuse me, very in the US mm-hmm. savings actually, and it's because of COVID, because people couldn't spend as much as at an all time high. Yeah, I wonder how that's distributed. You know, this is the yeah, true. this is the tyranny of averages, isn't it? And so you could you could have a a, a situation where uh, um, you know the well, we know the very wealthy have got just obscenely wealthy. Um, the, the, the quick, a quick quip about averages, which relates to energy. Uh, I've got my head in the oven and I've got my feet in the freezer. On average, my temperature <laughs> is fine. <laughs> Well, that's a good transition to our next topic. Uh, the penmanship on this is horrible. But we're going to talk about Biden, Zelensky versus Putin and Xi. Mm-hmm. Um, there we go. 
Yeah. So well, I, I want to start. Like, can I start out by this? Can I just talk about? I mean, Zelensky is on this virtual world tour, yeah. uh, zooming into all kinds of parliaments. I think. I mean, obviously, this has changed communications forever. Um, I haven't fully processed it, but it's unbelievable. I mean, he, his ability now to connect and uh, on the front lines and speak to legislative bodies around the world is something. It's definitely changing communications forever. It is. He's he's been amazing. I think he's a worldwide hero. Um, so is Navalny. Is yeah. standing up to Putin from prison. Uh, yes. Yeah. Is, is Mark? Is he just a natural, or do you detect a very slick PR campaign somewhere in the back? Was that rather cynical of me? No, I think it's a combination. I think he's an amazing political performer. He's obviously trained. You know, I think I, I think exactly. comedians generally are some of the best yeah. communicators on the planet. And anytime I talk to an executive, I'm like, spend more time around comedians take improv classes he's just comfortable but obviously you know nothing's happening by accident there's some really high tech to securely beam a message from ukraine to the japanese parliament uh you know there's all, yeah. we can't we have to recognize that there's a lot of special tech going on um but this has changed the game forever i think more politicians frankly at a national level maybe communications becomes even more important going forward well, well certainly certainly uh Z Zelensky and Navalny's courage is not fake. That's for sure. I mean, that's for sure. unbelievable what those guys are standing up to and having the courage to do. I mean, it, they, they're worldwide heroes. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Is, is there another aspect to this that, again, it changes or it, it maybe weakens the position of a lot of media channels? Because, you know, I can pick these, these guys up by the net. I don't have to watch it on CNN or the BBC or whatever. Right. Um, and from their perspective, they, they, you know, they haven't got the issue of an editorial spin on their, uh, on, on their talk or um, activities. Uh, I, I don't know. I think, you, I think you're right. Um, I wonder how long this sort of position persists. If this war is going on for many, many months, um, and dare I say it, do people kind of get bored? with all of this i don't know no that is a good uh well two points i do i'm a huge advocate of you know having your own communications platforms you know speaking directly to your audience i think right. we're only going to see more of that uh this idea of politicians as brands is certainly going to increase but yeah the stamina like how many more speeches can this guy make you know how many times is the japanese parliament going to want to listen to this when they've got north korean rockets shoot you know being shot off in their neighborhood no, I think that is a huge challenge, but I do think there's enough tenacity and enough focus that, you know, Zelensky can keep this going. I mean, this is a mission critical situation for Zelensky, and I think there's an audience there for him. Um, so I, go ahead, Jim. I, just, I was just going to say, I think that this is a classic um, example of, on, on the Putin and Z side of the equation, we've got top-down command and control. Yeah, uh, totally. And you could say that Zelensky and all the rest of it are coming up, if you like, in a sort of emergent way, in almost a sort of um, uh, ecological way. They've, they've sort of grown into this position. And of course, this is very unpredictable. Um, and so I, he may be being helped a bit by the fact, certainly in the case of Putin, that it's just a completely Soviet sort of 
style of message. Um, and so you, you kind of look good when you're up against that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if Putin and co were really that good on psyops and um, projecting the right image, they should be able to do something about this, but they, they, they're not even bothering to attempt, I don't think. Yeah, I don't know if you guys have had the, uh, well, there's two things. Like what a first buy she meeting, I don't know, maybe it was three, four months ago. Um, you know, Biden's in the Roosevelt room at a table with his like top advisors, right? She is in some great hall, literally one of the great halls, massive, you know, and he's at the center and he's surrounded by his peeps. Um, and I don't know if you guys ever had a chance to spend any time in the any Chinese embassy. Uh, it's amazing. It's ornate, but the chairs are just ginormous. It's just it's designed to not connect you, to like spread you out, to make you feel intimidated. And I do think from a communication style, Zelensky just sitting there talking to camera and, uh, you know, military gear, it, it just resonates. It just connects. And maybe that's a Western thing, but he's using every asset he has. And that's one of his great tools right now. Yeah. Yeah, he look he looks and clearly is authentic. Whereas, um, you know, the, 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 did either of you gentlemen see this slightly bizarre photograph or bit of video of Putin with a bunch of air stewardesses? Or um, <laughs> that was some weird stuff, man. That was. And that was... some people are saying they weren't actually in the room that it was sort of blue screened in some sort of crazy way yeah. because his hand sort of goes through a microphone and this, that, and the other. Um, it, it, I like it when he sits at that at the table all the time, and everybody else is on the clear on the other side of the room. It's hell of a ping pong table. Isn't yes. It? <laughs> well, Jim has Jim has the same setup. He doesn't want to say that, but when he meets with his underlings, he has the same setup. He's a thirty foot table. <laughs> well, I, I assumed we all did. I think um, looking from uh, the the Russian side of this, they uh, not that they're in the business of courting global public opinion, but that that's just completely gone. Um, and maybe that leads to the next point that, that if you like, on the military side, it's kind of deadlocked for the time being, may well stay deadlocked. Um, and so it's... Which is a huge win for the Ukrainians. Oh, massively. Yeah. Massively. Um, and also there's a sidelight to that in that um, I wonder how US military intelligence feel about things because... They advised the US, U.S. administration that the Afghan army was as solid as a rock and it melted in, was it, two weeks? And that uh, the Russians would walk all over the Ukrainians in a similar period and it's just not happened. So they're, they're, I think lots of people are having to look at you know, their view of the world and how they predict things. Well, how, how much of this, what's happened in Ukraine, Putin's move and when he decided to do that, what chairman she may be looking at doing, how much of this is related to Biden's perceived weakness? There was an interesting poll here that came out a couple of weeks ago from Harvard University. So obviously not a conservative poll, Harris poll from Harvard University. And they asked this very question and they asked two questions. And the first question was, do you think this would be happening if Trump were president? Still, And 62% of the people said no. And then they asked, is the move from Putin based upon what Biden's weakness or perceived weakness? And 59% agreed with that on the Harvard University poll. So, Jim, I think, yeah, I mean, I've been really intrigued by why this this is happening now. I mean, the the Russians have been in Ukraine for eight years, right? So this is really eight years plus 30 days, this conflict. And 
it dawned on me there's two things. I have a, I'm looking at a photo here, Biden in 1988, 1988 in Moscow, right? So he's been dealing with the Russians as long as anybody. And she spent over a week with him, has met with him when he was vice president 10 or 12 times. There is no president. Yeah, there was a few times too, I think, right? <laughs> well, that's, a, that's another separate podcast. But, uh, uh, there's, but there's no president that the Chinese or Russians that have ever known better than Biden. That is, they know this guy for, four, we're talking 40 years. Yeah. And yeah. whatever goofiness we think of Biden, you know, Moscow and Beijing also have opinions on that. And I, I you cannot say this is not connected. For whatever calculus they have, they see Biden possibly as a one-termer. They see him as weak. And they were like, it's go time. And, and Kamala Harris is weaker. Right. And the combination, I mean, just why now? Why make this invasion? Why this no-limit deal? Um, uh, there has to, I mean, that's one of the, it has to be connected. And, and I was kind of comparing it to when Obama was in office and Obama was just as left as Biden. Yeah. His Probably per- more so. And I'm not so sure of that now. Uh, his <laughs> perception of, or his persona was certainly not viewed as weak. No. And I think that's the big difference. The other, the other issue here is, um, and I may reveal quite a lot of ignorance, but is Biden is really the ultimate Washington insider and has known everybody for even longer than that, 40 years, and was a skilled negotiator of what you can get done and can't get done in Washington. Was he really ever considered a foreign affairs expert at all, or was he really just a Washington man? Well, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. All oh, right. Okay. I mean, well, that's where he, that's why he was doing all of this work in Russia and China. Yeah. In his role as chairman right. of the committee. Okay. I mean, um, I would say yes. analysis is that every move, the, every foreign policy decision Biden has ever advocated has been wrong. Well, I, mean, I don't want to be, I'm not, I don't know. I, I would say he knows more about the world than certainly most Americans, right? Now, is he a, is he a Kissinger? You know, I have no idea. But, yeah, he certainly traveled the world, knows these people. Um, Afghanistan was a debacle. Oh, listen, 30 days in, his ability to keep this coalition together can't be underestimated. I mean, you know, things are going well now for Biden in terms of domestically. The poll numbers are horrible. Gas prices out of control. Inflation. I don't know. If Zelensky pulls this out and we keep the coalition together for a year, I mean, Biden could go down as an all-time great. Well, it's still I early I, days. Do you think Biden's getting any credit for keeping the coalition together? It seems that Macron is doing a lot more. Oh, <laughs> Macron. I don't know. I mean, there's no way Gerald would agree that Macron is doing a good job. Well, I'm not saying he's doing a good job. <laughs> I'm saying he's trying to do something. He's the one talking to Putin. Well, getting back to that, too, that's another, like, Merkel not being at the table, too. I mean, you know, that also has to work into the Xi-Putin calculus. I don't know. Gerald, defend Macron. Well, Monsieur Macron, you know, um, <laughs> the, I, I'm still reeling from his photo opportunity in combat fatigues. Was it two weeks ago or last week? Um, <laughs> I think, you know, this is, I think Jim makes a really important point here because everybody's got very different agendas. Macron's agenda is about keeping France as uh, certainly equal to Germany and the right. EU. And well, that's the election this year too, correct? Uh, coming up in only a few weeks' time. Yeah, only a few weeks. 
Yes. We, we have a French election special next time. There you go. Oh, good. <laughs> um, a, a short trailer for that. But, you know, there's, uh, French also have got the advantage they've got the EU presidency. It's only for six months. But all the stars are aligned for Macron with uh, to, to try and become top dog. Merkel's gone. Um, the EU presidency is in place. Um, but all of a sudden, Germany seems to have woken up. I mean, they certainly have woken up in the 89th minute of the game. But they are suddenly talking about spending serious money on defence. Whether that will actually happen and how long it takes, another matter. But I think Macron's agenda is, say, very different from um, uh, many other people in the EU, and for that matter, from the United States. It's actually quite a pro-French thing. I mean, I think he was hoping that he was going to broker a deal with Putin where Ukraine became neutral, you know, this sort of Finlandization idea and of course that's blown up in his face so um i i think i still think the really interesting thing about this whole issue is how do we get to an end game and what that end game yeah. looks like and how does putin get out of this yeah how does he how does he exactly sort of wait uh, walk away still in some sort of shape and if if there is no exit for him you know like a cornered beast what is he what's he going to do about it and i think that in a sense, sets the agenda for how everybody else reacts. Um, I don't know. I'm still in the yeah. camp. I think it'll just rumble on for quite a long time. Yeah, I think it probably will too. Yeah. I mean, Vietnam was, you know, almost 20 years, right? I mean, Afghanistan was like 100? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I looked at um, even when the NATO did those operations in the former Yugoslavia, that was a 90-day campaign, right? right. Uh, yeah. I don't know. So let's well, transition I'm, to. I'm, go ahead. Thought on this, gents, is um, uh, like everybody of our vintage, we brought up on loads of documentaries about the Second World War and everything, mm -hmm. um, a, a six-year global affair. But modern warfare, almost by definition, is going to be a far shorter. Just the sheer expense, the sheer expense of, of keeping things going for many months or whatever. Yeah. Um, so whether it'll just, you know, I hear the Russians are now digging in were in their positions in Ukraine. Maybe it will just get into some sort of, um, I don't know, a sort of stodge where nothing can move and nothing gets solved politically. Because the sheer cost of running these campaigns is eye-watering. I mean, we talk about the, you know, oh, we'll fire off X number of missiles and things. Um, this is not a cheap thing to do. This isn't like, you know, infantry battalions 60 or 70 years ago. This is a totally different game. Well, it's a good transition to things that aren't cheap. Democracy in America. So we're going to talk about political labels and the primaries. And since we have Jim here, foremost expert on politics in America. Jim, Jim Joe brought this up. Are political labels, do they matter anymore? This idea, left, right, Republican, Democrat, Labor, Tory. Um, do the voters care anymore? Or if they even understand what they are now. I mean, it's change i don't understand why the uh, the right in america still uses the term conservative i mean yeah. look, the the left uses progressive right even though they believe in regressive policies <laughs> yet they're progressive I, I i don't understand why the republicans don't talk about their prosperity candidates and it's prosperity versus progressives Oh, interesting. The regressive versus a conservative is really a negative word and really always has been. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's it's backward looking, isn't it? Because you're it's conserving you're conserving what you've already got. Right. And if you haven't got anything, well, I'd rather like to shake things up actually. So I'm not right. going to vote for you. Whereas progressive is looking to the future, moving forward, and, and all of the things they talk about, but then their actions are opposite, really. Both sides. So are we going to see a major shakeup in the next, uh, you know, I mean, let, so let me give you my theory. Obviously, I think, that, you know, 2022 this year, we got an election here in the States. I think Biden actually retires in February 2023, gives a job to Kamala, and we have 60 candidates for office in 2024, and it is like the Super Bowl <laughs> politics yeah, for the next two years. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, are we going to see? Uh, it just seems right for new parties, new labels, new terms, new voting coalitions. Are we really at a big inflection point, or am I been watching too much West Wing? Well, you know, I think this election, the midterms, may give us some clues to that. Uh, I mean, people are thinking, at least here in D.C. and Mark, I'm sure you hear that, and Gerald, I don't know what. How, many, how much people pay attention in the UK around the world as to what the midterm elections in the US will do. But for us, you know, the thought that, and the Republicans are promulgating this, and I think they're an error doing that, talking about a big wave that they're going to be able to take the House and the Senate. And if you look at the Senate races that are up, that's just a very difficult road for them. They just don't have enough targets. They only have four that they can pick up a Democratic seat. And, and I think they've got problems in all four of those. So uh, 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 the concept of swing states, is that pretty much gone? Are things pretty solidified? Yeah, it's, the states are, the voting patterns are way more defined and polarized and stable today than they have been. And I think if, if uh, close to 10% inflation and five dollar gas prices doesn't change that in the midterms then yeah. nothing's going to right. um, again i think we would see a type of wave election if the election were next week uh, the redistricting where we changed the district lines based on the census was looked to be favorable for the republicans it's not the court decisions have gone all towards the democrats and so instead of Republicans, I think, needing five seats to take the House majority, I think it may end up being closer to a net of 13. I think that's a safe number for them. I think they wow. can get that. Uh, but, you know, this idea that they're going to pick up some 50 seats and it's going to be this wave, I, I don't see that. That's just not possible. With In a redistricting year where the, the lines of the districts in the House have been changed and stabilized, you don't see those big swings in a redistricting year. And this is only the third time since 1930 that we've had a midterm in a redistricting year. What, uh, Jim, what numbers are you looking for in terms of like predicting where the election might go? Is it, is it Biden's approval rating? Is it economic numbers? Yeah, is I think it economic, voter intensity. Uh, yeah, all, all of that's important, but the ones that really have tended to move the voter behavior. And economists have, have released some reports talking about a 7% inflation rate tends to move voter behavior. And by that, I mean where people start voting against the incumbents. Yeah. And then there's less studies on gas prices. Those seem to be the two movers, inflation and gas prices. And, and one major company did a story uh, or study on it and came up with it. And this is way before all this started happening. This is a couple of years ago. Um, came up with a uh, $4.01 seems to be based on past voting history that that it may be a barrier that people start 
feeling that and are willing then to vote against incumbents. Because keep in mind, at least in the House of Representatives, even in a bad year, over 90% of the incumbents who run for re-election win. Right. And, you know, it's... Uh, so Jim, can you, a, a, ba- a really bad year for the incumbents is when only 85% of them win. Right. <laughs> I mean, really. Hey, that, Jim, that, yeah. Can you talk? Yeah. I mean, can you glean any insights? And this is, I don't know if you, this is, I'm going to throw you for a loop, but, you know, Justin Trudeau held a snap election last fall and there virtually was no change. As yeah. Gerald mentioned, you know, the French are going to the polls in a few weeks here. Um, what, what can American strategists or American political operators learn from, you know, these votes in other countries? Well, Do you I look think, at them as all, or yeah, as a guide, or I haven't really studied. I want to, and I, 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 the the Canadian one is is interesting. And once again, and we saw though that in the Canadian election, as we had in the U.S. in two elections, two recent elections with George W. Bush in two thousand and Trump in two thousand sixteen, and Trump and or Trudeau in the last two, the plurality of people did not vote for those winners. Yeah. So I mean, more people voted against Trudeau than voted for him, but yeah, it's still yeah. because of the system that he is still mm-hmm. in power. Uh, so I'm not, you know, you have to read that part of it into it too. Uh, what I think has to happen in this election to have a wave, and the Republicans haven't been very good on their agenda message. They haven't had a new idea since Newt Gingrich in the '90s. But um, they, they contract need- with America that was that was fantastic. But that was that was they nationalized the election. And they're going to have to do that again this time, but they're going to have to have some type of positive solution in addition to the negative. It's not going to be enough to not be Biden and not be the Democrats. That is going to be important to set the stage, but they've got to, people are going to say, well, what are you going to do to solve this? And they've got to have an answer. It can't be like when they say we're going to replace and repeal Obamacare and then they got the majority and then they had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder. Uh, Paul Ryan was the Speaker of the House, Mr. Policy, Mr. Wonk, and they have no, they had no b- bill. It was ridiculous. They can't do that again. They've got to have a solution. Here's what we're going to do on inflation. Now, I think they handled this Russian oil situation very well. I thought the messaging on that was quite good, and I think it had an effect, and it definitely moved and helped force Biden to do something. And they've got yeah, did- more of that in this election to really see a big change coming. It does seem that the Congress generally has been a bit ahead of uh, Biden for whatever reason. Maybe they can be a bit more nimble, not as diplomatic. But uh, yeah, I think that's a good observation. Joe, do you have a point? I was just going to say, as an outsider, um, are we going to see some, certainly from my perspective, fresh faces? As uh, Mark says, you know, there could be some really big, um, you know, big lists of candidates coming forward. Is, uh, Is there anybody in the sort of, Dan one say as a personality that's going to cut through, do you think, in the next presidential election? Or we can... Well, you know, well, we may see an old one coming back here. Uh, we had a uh, oh, Hillary. Congressman <laughs> Don Young from Alaska passed oh. away last week um, on, on the airplane back home. And um, Sarah Palin is now talking about maybe hopping into that special election for the wow. at-large I'm going to load up on popcorn if that's the case. Yes. Yeah, so um, we well, no, and I, I always said Sarah Palin would be a fine member of Congress. You know, as a vice president, that might be a bit much, but she'd be a totally reasonable, fine member of Congress. In fact, yeah. you know, she'd be an ideal member of Congress. 
But well, we'll see. We'll see if she actually does it. We'll see if she can win. It's a crazy system they've adopted out in Alaska. It'll be the first time they've used it too. It actually will help her to some degree. Um, so, like in these primaries now, four people are going to advance to the general election out there instead of two. And so, uh, you know, we'll we'll see what happens on that. But but in terms of you know, we we will have a lot of you know, we've had a lot of turnover in America here. I mean, we still have a majority of the House of Representatives big majority, has served three full terms or less, three full two-year terms or less. And in the Senate, you know, the vast, vast majority of the senators, I think it's over 70%, have not served two full terms. And so, and we're going to have at least seven new senators because we've got seven new open seats. And we're going to have at least 57 new House members out of 435. I love it. Uh, So... You know, you've, you've had a lot no, of no, I'm, I'm not getting any hot tips on who's going to be the next <laughs> in the United States. There is the, I think the benches on each, either side are a little bit weak, particularly for the Democrats. Most of their leaders are in their 80s. Um, I look to the governors mm-hmm. coming up. That tends to be a bigger platform uh, for national leadership than the, uh, than the Senate and certainly the House. Yeah, uh, Ron DeSantis in Florida, he is definitely going to be somebody we're going to be hearing about. Um, I'd watch the governor's elections real closely. I think that's where your your new leaders come from. Glenn Youngkin here in Virginia is a possibility. So I uh, I hang on to my 10 bucks before I put money on anybody. Else. I would, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good transition. Let's finish up with our favorite segment, what we're reading and watching. Who wants to go first? Well, we let our guests go first. Uh, Are you, you know, reading or watching anything, Jim? Uh, I'm watching the basketball tournament for sure. I tend to, as a, as a former football uh, official, <laughs> I tend to look at... Officiating. Please, your reading tends to be more sports and entertainment oriented. As I try to get away from the politics, but uh, other than my regular daily constant reading about politics. but So I'm looking more at... Uh, and, of course, I'm in these fantasy baseball leagues we've got i've got two auctions to deal with <laughs> so i'm analyzing players <laughs> baseball is back so this yes. is this yes. is escapism. On both sides finally subsided to the point where they're going to play the games so this is escapism from it is definitely normal life. As, as my san francisco 49er helmet here will attest right. <laughs> Well, I I, um, I normally inflict a book on people, and I'm going to do the same again. I'm afraid it's another it's another quite thick tome. This one it's another 400 pages, um, which I am going to go back and read. It's um, it's a biography of um, Samuel Pepys, and Pepys, of course, very famous uh, for his diaries in the 1660s and 1670s. But this biography is written by a lady called Claire Tomlin who's been a biographer in the UK for ooh, forever. I mean, I think she's now in her 80s. This book is about 10 or 15 years old. Um, and it kind of fills in the gaps uh, that you don't get from the diaries. And it explains the politics. And both you guys would recognize a lot of what's going on. Uh, very important, you sit on the right committees, um, yes. you marry the right people, and you have a really uh, helpful brother-in-law. But it's um, it's a, it's, a, it's kind of a, a cracking read. You know? It's actually called the unequaled self, and Samuel Pepys is quite an interesting character. And he wrote this diary uh, without any expectation anybody to read it. 
so he, um, he you know, <laughs> he's expurgated and he, his opinions of people uh, are pretty direct, but it, it, it's well worth it. And then I, I raised, I raised with Mark the idea that um, maybe this is a personal view that I think lots of film sequels are rubbish. They're not very good at all, right? Uh, but I can think of two notable exceptions. I think the first one, which I think is really good, and these films stand on their own, I think, is French Connection 2, which is obviously the follow-up to, uh, to French Connection. Gene Hackman in both of them, and I, I think it's a really good one. And then a, one, uh, a second one, which I think is a good sequel, but I think it bombed at the time it came out, but it's now become fashionable to say it's a, a minor classic. It's obviously the, the true classic of Chinatown uh, with Jack Nicholson. And then there was a follow-up called The Two Jakes. Two Jakes. And it's actually a really good film. Um, I should point out I'm getting, um, I'm getting no dollars for this promotional stuff I'm doing for these guys. But it'll, I'm sure uh, <laughs> karma, karma will be such that the universe will reward me in some way. You'll be invited to, uh, yeah, next year's BAFTAs. <laughs> well, and the, uh, well, Gerald, and the Downton Abbey movie is coming out again soon. So <laughs> there you go. Every, every cliche, every cliche that you can think about England, carefully encapsulated into 120 minutes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so I get a recommendation. Uh, it's called War. Some light, not so light reading, but oh, right. uh, yeah. Margaret McMillan. But it really is like the human nature of war and conflict. Um, how it impacts culture, um, not so much strategy, but really, you know, what civilian life is like and uh, how it shaped culture. So quite an interesting read. And I watched a movie uh, continuing the French theme called The Gaulle, which was, came out in 2020. It's a French film. It's an interesting window. It just shows it's just basically June 1940 when De Gaulle decides to leave his family to go to London and he pitches to Churchill and the other cabinet members, hey, I'm the you know, true voice. Let me start broadcasting to encourage the resistance. And the Brits had to decide because they had this weird relationship with the you know, French Vichy government. Um, and then how de Gaulle's family escapes and they meet up with him. But um, I don't know. Kind of, it was interesting, the diplomacy of it and how what is said or what is being reported is always quite complicated with these governments and relationships. And it's a good reminder about what's happening in the world today. So. Not the most up, uplifting way to close, but I'll say I am in a fantasy league, Jim. I'm in, I'm in an, a Formula One fantasy league. Oh, Formula One? Oh, interesting. Yeah, so we're I've looking forward right. to the, uh, the Saudi Arabia race this weekend. Well, I take that back. I did do a racing uh, uh, fantasy leagues a long time ago, NASCAR. Yeah, it's quite easier. There's only 20, 20 racers, so yeah. <laughs> it doesn't require as much skill. Mark, I've just suddenly thought of a, a nice De Gaulle anecdote for you, and it's perfectly true. That when I don't know if it's in the film, but when De Gaulle came over to London, they had to find him an office to sort of set himself up as the uh, free French uh, state or whatever. And they found somewhere just off Trafalgar Square, and the address was actually Waterloo Place. Now, um, if, that, if, that is, if that isn't British humor, I don't know what is. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good tidbit. I don't know that. That's good. <laughs> All right. So that's it. As always, our friends in Italy, look us up. We're ready to uh, I, I, work for RAF. There's clearly a postal strike. Otherwise, your enormous contract would already have arrived. Yeah. I'm ready. I'm ready to sign. I'm very, I was, uh, very affordable. 
All right, guys, this was great. Thanks for making the time. Jim, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Gerald, it was nice meeting you virtually. Well, that's the best way I can assure you. <laughs> yeah, nice to meet you. Take care. Hey.